Good morning. This is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Monday the 6th of April and we are still in lockdown. Boris Johnson was taken to hospital last night following rumours last week that his condition was worse than had been publicly admitted by number 10. Downing Street last night attempted to stress he was still in charge but we'll come back to Johnson in a bit. First... And when I was uh, declared elected three and a half hours ago, I announced... I announced to our conference that my first action in this new position as leader of the Labour Party would be to come to a demonstration in support of refugees, the right to asylum and the human needs of people all over the world. Open your hearts and open your minds and open your attitude towards supporting people who are desperate, who need somewhere safe to live, want to contribute to our society and are human beings just like all of us. Together in peace, together in justice, together in humanity. That surely must be our way forward. Thank you very much for inviting me today. Corbyn is gone and a new Labour leadership takes the reins. That clip was Jeremy Corbyn in 2015, almost immediately after winning the leadership of the Labour Party for the first time, uh, when he went to a pro-refugee, pro-migrant rally in London. And it's sometimes difficult to remember in the long five years that have passed since, but it was like a long-needed drink of water in a desert. And there was nobody at the top of British politics at that time who would express solidarity in those terms. We had after all, just come out of the era of, what do you feel when you see a white van, Mr Miliband? I feel respect. Christ. And it was also, I think, startling for those of us on the left to see a man who had been at our picket lines and on our protests bring together a wave of people far wider and more numerous than we ever expected. With the bitterness of 2019 still on our tongues, we should remember 2017, but 2015 as well. But He's gone, and Keir Starmer is now in charge. Many of the people most identified with the Corbyn period are now leaving the Labour front bench. Abbott and McDonnell already indicated that they would step down. Last night, others, including Lavery, Trickett and Barry, Barry Gardner, were also on their way back to the back benches. Starmer had indicated that he intended to create a shadow cabinet reflecting both the balance of the party uh, and the spread of the country. Uh, But Starmer enters a world already profoundly changed from the world as it was when the race began loping to its foregone conclusion what feels like a hundred years ago now. Its coordinates, the stars by which he was set to navigate, have wheeled and turned in the sky. It would take much longer than the few minutes that we have this morning to properly take stock of the Corbyn period at minimum, and who knows for how long the political direction of the party has changed and the policies of the Corbynite period remain immensely popular with the party's members, something Starmer recognised in his campaign in his uh, 10 pledges. On broader political questions, the party decisively turned away from technocratic blandness. None of the serious contenders as Corbyn's successor spoke the same unsalted 
tap as his rivals did in 2015. At the same time, the Corbynite programme of party reform, which was always more controversial in the coalition, uh, which made up Corbynism than often realised, it has to be said, uh, it it never quite became reality. Though the membership has swollen, little of it is engaged, including the 250,000-odd who didn't vote in this election. The party's structures have changed really very little in the past five years, democratisation stalled. It's likely many on the party's left will identify this as one of the key failings of the past few years, and I share that judgment. There are open questions. How, for instance, might momentum now adapt? It's now freed from what were sometimes dual and conflicting imperatives, defend the leadership of the party, including from wreckers internally, while pushing for the advancement of left-wing policies within it, and perhaps some serious conversations to be had there about that organisation's direction. At the very least, it will need to rethink its role as more than trying to pick up the slack of Labour's press relations, which is, at times, what it felt like in the past year. I often like to nick the line attributed to Joe Enlai purportedly when he was asked about the success of the French Revolution. It is too soon to tell. The true outcomes of the Corbyn period will only be understandable in the way it shapes its successor movements, and that is as yet unclear, and it also depends very greatly, I think, on who stays in the party and who leaves. And no one can quite read the tea leaves yet. And that is itself remarkable for Starmer to have reached the end of his campaign and victory within the party and holding now what is probably the toughest job in politics, that's leader of the opposition and particularly leader of a Labour opposition, and to still know relatively little about him or to be able to predict which way he'll go on key questions. The new shadow cabinet has avoided what would be a gut blow to the left, that would be appointing Rachel Reeves as John McDonald's successor, for instance, and given her an enthusiastic record of dog-whistling and cheerleading for austerity, uh, the dog-whistling nonsense on migration, for which she is well-known among the left of the party. She's in the shadow cabinet, though, shadowing Michael Gove at the cabinet office and the like. Uh, Soft-left candidates like Annalise Dodds are, in fact, in the top roles. Lisa Nandy becomes Shadow Foreign Secretary. And we wait to see what, and indeed whether, Rebecca Long-Bailey might be offered. And that will become clear, I think, later today. If I had to hazard a guess from the composition so far, the direction to me looks like Corbynomics. Annalise Dodds was part of the McDonald Shadow Treasury team. Uh, and perhaps without some of the wider commitments of the party under Corbyn, especially... Uh, on foreign policy, which went along with it. But that, it really is only a guess. In any case, at least for the moment, the coronavirus changes everything. This was a leadership candidate expecting to come in and deal with Boris Triumphants, gliding around on his slick and rather large majority and having got Brexit done, and perhaps waiting for it all to unspool and get sticky for him. That's That's just no longer true. There is virtually no other story at the moment anyway. And even when the immediate medical phase of the pandemic ends, there are at least two enormous consequences to face. That's the vast economic shock now underway uh, and now becoming very visible. And perhaps the more diffuse consequences among the wider population if we're forced to effectively live in near isolation for a substantial chunk of time, effectively giving some of the behavioural symptoms of clinical depression to a vast swathe of Western Europe. It could be that everything clicks back into place. That does seem to me increasingly like the least probable outcome, that 
this moment differs from the 2008 crisis because it works effectively from the real from the real economy into the financial system rather than the other way around and that it is unlike previous pandemics which passed and left little changed because we no longer think about what government is for and its responsibilities, what its capacities are, in the same way that we did, say, a hundred years ago around the time of the Spanish flu. But in any case, we're on the horns of emergency conditions, and they're difficult for any opposition leader. Do you criticise the government response, which in so many ways and urgently does need criticism? Or do you effectively support the government during the emergency period, not least because your reading of the popular mood is that criticism, which looks destructive or self-seeking, will be far worse for you in the long run? I spoke to the Prime Minister yesterday and said to him that I mean what I say about constructive engagement. We've all got a duty here to save lives and protect our country. And... The Labour Party, under my leadership, uh, will ask difficult questions, but only for the purpose of pointing out mistakes so they can be put put right. So that's the approach I'm going to take. Constructive engagement, working and having the courage to say the government's got it right when the government has got it right. Getting the balance right is important here. We've got to be constructive. We've got to pull together, um, support the government where it's right to do so. But asking those difficult questions matters. You can see that when the difficult questions were asked on testing, things began to move. Same thing with equipment on the front line. So scrutiny is important here, because if scrutiny points out mistakes that can then be put right, it's achieved a very important thing going forward. But But not opposition for opposition's sake. I'm not going to score party political points, and I won't demand the impossible, which is very easy to do in a time like this. The answer for Starmer at the moment appears to be a kind of caution. Lots on the left will bridle at this, but I think it's motivated by recognition and right recognition that a kind of pure oppositionism is very difficult right now. My concern is that that caution not be elevated into a principle in and of itself. And to deride opposition for opposition's sake is a good line, but it can easily degrade into offering no opposition at all. It's worth saying that the world is changing and shifting around us. A piece by, of all things, the Financial Times editorial board over the weekend underlines just how much so in terms of economic recovery. It really astonishingly, in some ways, says policies like basic income will have to be in the mix. That's important. Uh, on the one hand, look, it's the, the FT is the press arm of the economic system, recognising that it's in crisis and doing anything in a crisis to try to resolve it. And afterwards, they'll say, well, we never said anything like that at all. <laughs> But it does indicate that on the other side of the crisis, many of the colours in the palette will be Labour's. It's important to lay the foundations right now of the political claim to that future. Many of Corbyn's critics have spent the last few years asking, can you move with the times? The same question applies here as well. The claim that politics stops during the emergency is a well-turned piece of rhetoric. But it is just that, rhetoric. I could bang on a bit about the press reception to the end of Corbyn's tenure, their casual rewriting of the history of the past five years, which is more contested and more interesting than they now want to make it, and the sheer excitement that they have at the return of a respectable opposition, or the exultant pieces of imagined bloodletting by washed-up retirees of the Blair years. Alan Johnson was on Sky over the weekend, fantasising from his living room yet again about a new purge of momentum. That won't happen, I think, and one shouldn't get overexcited by the Sturm und Drang of the terminally irrelevant, but one should know it's out there. 
To me, there's a more important question instead. I don't like that Tony Benn line that's doing the rounds at the moment about there being no final victory and no final defeat. I actually do think there are of both. But I understand the need for consolation, especially for those of us who still taste the bitterness of that December defeat. It's an especially pressing question for those who flooded into the party before and after Corbyn's leadership win and who were inspired by his politics and maybe more so the politics of the movement around him. I know that there's certainly been a sense among some that, well, if there's no future for the left in the party, why not go outside of it instead? Why not do community work or drift somewhere smaller and perhaps less stressful outside? That is a mistake. The prophecy that there is no future for the left in the party is a piece of palm reading done by soothsayers on the party's right who urgently wish it to be true. But the only way it comes true is if people like you and people like me make it come true. Something personal then. I came to left-wing politics in a period in which it didn't look especially promising, the fag end of the Blair years after marching against Iraq and involvement in the tiny movement around climate change and the small meetings of few socialists in stale rooms above pubs, the same old faces, fiefdoms, microsects, incomprehensible internecine ideological struggles. A return to those years, locked out of any meaningful presence in public life, speaking only to ourselves, waiting for reality to adjust itself to our expectations, that truly would be the disaster. There can be something alluring about the margins, but a return to them now to outsiderness would be self-defeating folly of the very highest order. Defeats are bitter, and lots of us have begun, and though few of us, if we're really honest, have finished, thinking about what it means to take the left forward, what we were wrong about, how we need to change, and as important as that, what we need to defend. Even now, people oscillate wildly between we did nothing wrong and everything must go. It's hard to be confident of your politics after a defeat, but the perverse thing about this moment is that it might actually remind us in all of our, all of its darkness, of the fault lines that we have always known are there, of the injustices that we have always known are there, of the urgent need for change that we know is there. The last thing on this, there were many things the left got wrong in its leadership of the party. All leaderships get things wrong. But there's a move made by many in the party and the press that deduces back from that, from those mistakes, to an argument that also your principles are wrong, that you should be ashamed ever to have held them or regard them as a kind of fit of temporary madness. But I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to have been part of a movement that believed things could change profoundly. I'm not ashamed to have been part of a movement that said that the poorest he is equal to the greatest he. I am not ashamed to have been part of a movement which said the urgent crises which face the planet need far more than tinkering at the edges and just hoping it goes away. I am not ashamed of having been part of a movement that says hunger, poverty and despair are not inevitable features of the world as natural as the rain or the sun, but that they are man's creations and can be swept away by man. I'm not ashamed to believe and to continue to believe that the common heritage of humanity is a common treasury for all, or that the greed and profit debase and dehumanise us. I am not ashamed of fighting for a movement which was born out of the many small struggles of those with little to nothing, the many, without lands or title, without noble ancestry or powerful friends, without wealth and without ownership, to remember from whom it came 
and what it is for, and nor should you be either. If not from Tony Benn, then, perhaps from Seamus Heaney, these lines. Anything can happen. The tallest towers be overturned. Those in high places daunted. Those overlooked regarded. And that's something to remember, I think. All right. A few more little things this morning. Johnson is in hospital for those tests, having not recovered from the coronavirus and confirming rumours last week that his condition was worse than had been let on generally in the press. Number 10 are very, very keen to stress that he's definitely still in control and still in charge. But there's infighting at the cabinet table. One has to remember, of course, that Tory ministers especially spend long hours sharpening their knives But the conflict seems to be at least partially between the various departments as the conflicting pools of this situation, economic, public health, civil liberties, pull in increasingly different directions. That's especially true at the moment in that conflict between economic strategy and public health. Now, ministers are apparently being told that social distancing may well need to continue in some form up until September, but it's not clear that they can stomach it. Uh, And those against this lockdown are also briefing out a rather warped bit of concern about its other impacts on routine healthcare. It's not entirely unreasonable at that. It really will have an impact on things that are routine, but pretty serious, like cancer screening. But it's being politically deployed here as a movement within the Tory party. It's certainly true that the Treasury is becoming worried about the economic impact and there's lots of briefing and counter-briefing going on to try to apportion blame, especially to the civil service, which is, of course, a favourite place to shift blame uh, if you're in government. This comes from ministers who seem to be staring up at the sky and watching the asteroid come in. It's worth just reading this quotation from a Treasury source in the Sunday Times. Uh, The period from October 2020 to June 21 could be a bonfire of jobs. The shops will reopen and government support will be tapered away. Those shops will just hit the wall. Uh, This time next year, you're looking at a 30% reduction in the service industry. A lot of people will get back on their bike and the bike will just fall over. Now that gives you a shade of how serious they think it is and how seriously also we should take it. Meanwhile, Matt Hancock is telling footballers to give up their wages as part of the effort. I've always thought it's striking when they do this, when especially conservative governments uh, reach for footballers in particular. I'm not a football fan. I think the wages are are jaw-dropping. But isn't it telling that the thing that they single out is an industry, and it is an industry, where the highly paid are also the highly class mobile, almost always from working class backgrounds or migrants, rather than seeking out those more systematically wealthy with whom they're perhaps more personally familiar. So ahead of us today, we'll doubtless hear more about Johnson's condition. There will be much talk about the Queen's message last night. There will be some blaming, of course, for the general public for their perceived infractions over the weekend and lots of attention on how the rest of the Labour reshuffle turns out. The US, of course, and its crank president continues to look pretty terrifying. A bit later today, head over to the Navarra Media website and our feeds where you'll get a truly stunning follow-up interview to the recent ACFM episode on Utopia. I wouldn't miss that. It really is the perfect thing for you to be listening to in isolation. Really, go do that. Okay, more coming as the week goes on. As ever, get in touch on james at navarramedia.com. That's it. That is it for this morning. Stay safe, stay home, wash your hands and don't be a prick. This is The Burner, and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.